Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, Cole here. Thanks for tuning in to the Storytelling with Data podcast. We have a very fun episode in store for you today where I have the pleasure of sitting down with my husband, Randy. We're going to talk about presentations, the art of the introduction, and how all of that ties into my new book, Storytelling with You, Plan, Create, and Deliver a Stellar Presentation. Hi, Randy. Hi, Cole. First of all, huge congratulations on the new book. Thank you. It's always exciting to see it in the world, especially given the unique position that I have of seeing everything that had gone into writing and crafting the book. I'd love just as a starting point to have you share a little bit about the origin story of storytelling with you. Where where did this come from? The seed had been in my mind for a while, but the pen started to hit paper or started to type on the keys, if you will. It was actually January 2018. I was in a cafe in London. I had a down day between delivering workshops and thought that I wanted to write something new and something broader than what I've tackled before. Because in the many years that we've spent helping people design effective graphs and communicate with data, it's become increasingly apparent to me the role that the individual plays in that process of either making the communication successful or not. Right? Can you make a great graph? Okay, that's one part of the equation. But can you then subsequently talk about your work in a way that makes other people want to engage and listen and act. And so this book really tries to get into the strategy and the tactics for doing that, for preparing one's self to deliver a stellar presentation. It's interesting because one might stereotype that people who tend to deal with analytics, deal with data, who create graphs, that they may not always be the best to present that. Why, what's your theory on why that is? And where do you fall in that spectrum as someone with a math and analytics background? I think speaking in front of others, and I'll generalize here, that for the person who is drawn into a technical or an analytical type of role, that that tends to be scary. Uh, because oftentimes you know, we do the things that we are good at and that can get better at and that we are comfortable with. And so for folks who are most comfortable behind their computer, you know, coding or analyzing data or building graphs, that idea of then also needing to talk about it to someone else can be a little intimidating. And so I, I for one, I identify strongly as an introvert. My natural habitat is behind a computer in a room by myself. But I realized that if I stay there and I don't push myself, that I can't have the impact that I want to have. I can't teach others and help others in the way that I can if I 
figure out how to speak in a way that makes other people want to engage and listen and act. And if I can figure out how to do that, then I want to share that with everyone as well. So you really think this is a a learned skill? I mean, as we are parents to three kids, nine and under, it's really fun for us to watch at the dinner table as they each figure their way in which they tell stories, engage, and interact. But you can certainly see there are there are some natural gifts and there are some maybe unnatural ways in which this comes across. So do you think this is a, a learned skill? Absolutely. I mean, one myth that I would love to dispel is this idea that some people are just born naturally amazing speakers. Maybe that happens every once in a while, but I posit that that is rare. Good speakers are not born, they are developed. And they are developed typically through a great deal of practice. And so for anyone listening, if you've ever watched a great presenter or heard someone speak in a way that moved you and thought to yourself, oh, they're just naturally good at that, right? I could never, that could never be me. Please don't think that, right? Don't let that be the story that you tell yourself because communicating effectively is a skill just like any other. And you can be really strategic in how you approach honing that skill. But it's through practice and being really self-aware and refining in intentional ways over time that will help you get there. And there are a lot of practical things that you can do along that path, which I'm sure we'll get into. Now, when it comes to who this book is really geared toward, would, would you say it's geared towards the analyst who has to prepare for a presentation? Or is it geared towards the person who is already comfortable on stage and maybe doing some sessions? When you wrote the book, did you have an audience in mind? Absolutely. I think the audience that I had in mind primarily when writing is anyone who feels a bit of hesitancy or perhaps some nerves when it comes to presenting their work, whether that's formally standing on a stage or in a daily business meeting setting, because there are things that you can do that will help set you up for success, that will help you develop materials that are going to support you and work with you instead of run the risk of working against you. And things that you can do to develop your confidence and integrate ways to practice into your everyday that can help make great strides when it comes to overcoming any hesitancy that you have in talking about your work. And so that said, I think there's something in the book for everyone because there is no such thing as an expert presenter. Being an adept presenter is a journey and we can all continue becoming increasingly adept at how we present. And the book is really trying to summarize a decade of experience that I have from speaking in front of audiences from tiny intimate settings to huge conferences and how you can break that down into the component pieces and put the building blocks in place to be able to resonate and engage with an audience. That's go a little bit away from the book for a minute, because you mentioned something that I wanted to dig a little bit deeper in. It's all these workshops, all of these conferences and events that you've given talks to. 
Talk about that in terms of what you were finding when you would deliver to this small, intimate audience versus what you might have seen when you were standing on stage. Were there learnings along the way that may have appeared in the book? There were absolutely learnings along the way. And I I tried to get as much of it as I could into the book. So there's a good overview of a lot of those tips and tricks and strategies. But for me, irrespective of whether it was a small group or, or a big group, something that I went into and that I continue to go into every session with is being so prepared ahead of time that I can be really present and in the moment when I'm there in the room with other people, which allows me to be an observer and watch people's faces and body language. Speaking live with other people is amazing because you have a continuous feedback loop in your audience's responses. And, you know, this can be one-on-one when you're talking with someone. It can be in a small group setting. It can be in these big conferences where as you do things, you can see, you know, are people stiff and do they look stern and you need to win them over? Or do you see body language soften and people lean in and nods and smiles. And when you know your stuff really well and you've prepared ahead of time, it leaves some brain share open to be able to really watch and observe and react and do more of the things that seem to be working well or adjust when you notice reactions that you're not wanting to see or dig into that and ask questions and bring people along with you. Over time for me, it just became fascinating that the way I talk and the way I move and how I move around a space can make a difference in how the material comes across and is received. And that is profound. The way that you speak about something can make the difference between someone else wanting to pay attention and do that thing or not. That is a crazy superpower when you can figure out how to do it in ways that makes people want to engage. And that's really the crux of the knowledge and experience that I'm hoping to share with the new book. What's really interesting about that is it reminds me of playing saxophone. So Mm. when you're performing in playing in a big band gig, for example, as I do on a somewhat frequent basis, you're playing, you know your stuff, and the way in which the audience interacts with you really sets the tone for how you perform, especially in jazz and improvisation. And so as you were sharing that, it was making me immediately think about how you have to really know your stuff so that you can go in and you're playing it and you can still be aware. You're not worried about the notes on the music. You're you're, you know it enough that you can still be observing what's going on. Yep. Some of these big band gigs, are people dancing? Are they just sitting there? Do they look like they're happy? Are they talking? Are they paying attention? So you have enough wherewithal to be able to see what's happening. But then there's something that happens where there's a bit of feeding back and forth between the crowd and yourself as you're playing. And then there's a point where the crowd is not actually there as a musician. And I'm curious if that happens to you when you're speaking, where you are just in this flow, you're delivering, you know your content and no longer is the audience there or is the audience always have to be there for for you the speaker say more because i don't even know if i understand that because you're just you're so into the music that now you're in your own space and so you're no longer for example when you're doing a solo 
playing saxophone and you're you're improvising leading up to that moment you might be fully engaged with the audience and yeah. while you're soloing you don't even realize where you are and then maybe you hear somebody cheer or yell and then you're like oh yeah brings you I'm, back. I'm doing Yeah, that. I think that there probably are moments of that. I would be nervous if that happened for the majority <laughs> of a presentation, right? Just like you wouldn't want that to happen for the entire big band gig that you're talking about because then you lose you lose that connection, I think. But you can have those moments or those periods where yeah, where you are doing your thing and you're so into it. And so I get that way sometimes when I'm telling a story where I'll get into character and I sort of over-dramatize to make a point a lot of times. And so for that, I don't do it right at the beginning before I've established a connection with my audience. It's usually embedded somewhere later as a way to illustrate something or get us from one topic to the next. And for that, yeah, sometimes I do get more into my head and it's more of a performance. But then you come back to being able to make those connections with the audience again and see how it landed and understand those pieces. So yeah, there's probably some of that. But your point is a great one, which is you have to know your stuff well enough to let that happen so that when you're there in the moment, you can be fully present, whether that's fully present and observing your audience and reacting to that or fully present and so into the thing that you're doing that you do it then really well. Now, you've organized the book into these three sections, plan, create and deliver for the ultimate presentation. Which of those sections do you think most people neglect when they think about coming forward with their presentation? I think people pretty equally neglect planning and preparing to deliver. We spend most of our time typically on what's the middle section of the book, which is create, because it's really easy to get done with a project or an analysis and just jump straight to our tools. We open up PowerPoint or Keynote, we start making slides because that feels really productive and we have something to show at the end of it. But it actually, that's not the place to start and it's not the place to stop. <laughs> and that's the reason that the book is structured such that it is. So the whole first section, that's the yellow section in the book, is plan. These are all of the low-tech things that you should do up front. So this is after you've finished the project, you know what you need to communicate, but before you start creating the materials, stop and think about your audience critically, who they are, what they care about, who your target audience is, how you prioritize with their needs in mind first and foremost. Then how do you craft a message that's going to resonate and get really concise on what that sounds like? That's chapter two in the book. Once you've got your message straight, you can brainstorm and compile the pieces in a low tech way that are going to support it. People who have heard me speak before, one of the topics I often comment on are the power of post-it notes and creating a storyboard, which is a great thing to do up front after you've considered your audience, you've planned your message. Now think about what content is going to help support that message and edit ruthlessly during that process. So then you get your plan of attack that is going to help keep you on track and make the rest of the process more efficient. This is a great point to be thinking about a story. 
story as a way to structure your overarching presentation, stories that you might integrate into your presentation, depending on the context. So all of that happens before you ever open up your tools. And then that means once you open up your tools, you've got this plan. And now it's just about executing and making materials that are going to support you as you speak. And I'm going to actually skip over that step. We can come back to it if you want to. But I think that's where people spend the majority of their time now. So let's jump to the third section, which is deliver. Because as we talked about, the role that the person plays in communicating is a huge one. And it turns out you can actually have mediocre slides and visual materials. If you know your stuff, you know your story, you know what you want to get across, you can talk about that in a way that instills confidence and makes you credible in the eyes of your audience, that can still be a really successful scenario. And so particularly for people when they are facing time constraints and running short on time, instead of spending any of that time continuing to iterate on materials, spend that time developing yourself and practicing and getting to know your content and practicing how you use your voice and your body and the words you're going to use to transition through content. That the final section of the book, that deliver section, was super fun for me to write. It's actually, it's my favorite section of the whole book. It was all written in a very short matter of time and it was all new. For Storytelling with Data, by the time I wrote that book, I had taught so many workshops and said so many of those words in different ways before that the writing became actually very straightforward because I said those words many times. This was different because these are things that I haven't talked about in this way, or at least not that many times. And so it was really fun for me to figure out what are the topics going to be? How do they fit together in a way that by the time people go through them, they feel and exude confidence. And so the chapters in that final section are refined through practice, which is at the crux really about practicing aloud, which is one of my top strategies for being able to sound like someone that people want to pay attention to. There's an entire chapter on building confidence that I think it actually ended up being the longest chapter in the book and is my favorite. That's chapter 10, all about how do you use your voice and your body? Because it turns out there are all sorts of little things that we can do that have an impact in how we come across to others. There is a chapter on introducing yourself and the art of the introduction, which actually becomes a fun case study that anyone can use, even if you don't have an important presentation on the horizon, to be able to craft the story of themselves and actually apply many of the strategies outlined elsewhere in the book. And then that final chapter is on the delivery. What do you do leading up to right the day prior, the day of, during your presentation to make sure that it's stellar? Audience has come up so many times in our conversation so far from both the big band audience to knowing your audience. I think you have a podcast called Audience Matters. Yeah. Give give me some practical tips if I have an important talk coming up and it's for a large group of HR professionals. And that's all I know is it's a bunch of HR people. Is that enough? 
what advice would you give me when it comes to really doing the deep dive work that you do or you recommend doing when it comes to audience? So I think the more important the situation is, the more time you want to spend on this piece and the better you want to make sure you understand your audience going in. It's always an important thing, but, and this is true of most of the strategies in the book that the more important the thing is, the more of these pieces you should probably be spending time on and working on making sure that they're really strong. And so when it comes to audience, I would push you to go deeper than the general description. And some specific things to think about are, what is that person like? What motivates them? What are the constraints that they might face in their everyday? And probably most of all, what do you need them to do? do. So oftentimes when you can identify the action, then you can use that to back into some of these other thought processes that will help you say, okay, if that's what the outcome I need, then how do I frame that in a way that's going to work for my audience? And so if members of the audience, you can talk to them ahead of time to understand their needs in the given scenario or situation. If you don't have the ability to do that, then you can make some assumptions about what's going to be important for them. There's actually an exercise in the book that has you map out and actually draw a picture of a person in your audience and then list all of the reasons why they are likely to support you or do the thing that you want them to do. And then on the other side of the paper, list all of the ways in which they might resist you or not be inclined to act or do the thing that you want. And oftentimes going through a short exercise like that, where you spend 10 minutes thinking really critically about who is it that I'm communicating to and really any time you spend on this is going to be time well spent because it's very easy, alarmingly easy, in fact, to make a presentation for ourselves or for our data, for our project without ever pausing to consider the people on the receiving end of that. So we want to flip that around. And when you're communicating, you want to do so with your audience front and center in your mind through the entire process. Because ultimately, we're not communicating for ourselves, we're communicating for them. I think if more people spend time really thinking about their audience when they are planning and designing materials and delivering, we will have much better presentations. Now, that makes sense on the HR side. I can imagine getting in that persona, really imagining what is relevant for them. So I feel like that would be a worthy exercise and I could imagine doing that. But what do you what do you do when it's a very mixed audience? I'm standing up in front of my company, which is made up of many different people, or I'm at a conference that has marketing people, HR people, analytical people, that it's so varied. How how do you get that audience in mind and closer to be able to deliver a more meaningful message to such diversity? Mixed audiences are a challenge, but there are definitely things you can do to set yourself up for success. And so one thing I always urge people when you find yourself facing a mixed audience is, first of all, ask yourself, do you need to communicate to everyone 
simultaneously. Because if you have a mixed group that has subsets where the needs are not overlapping, those needs are sufficiently different, then it oftentimes will make sense to try to segment that out and actually communicate separately to the different audiences. So this would be assuming that you have different audiences who care about totally different things and you need them to do something or act in a way that is equally important. So in that case, thinking about how you might break them up to communicate in a more targeted fashion can be useful. So that said, there are certainly cases where you can't do that. The examples that you talk about where, no, you really need to communicate to everyone all at once. And so there, there are a number of strategies that you can apply. And a lot of them come back to this idea of finding common ground across your various subsets and using that as a place from which to communicate. And that can take on a number of forms. So you might find something that everyone in your audience can relate to or that they all care about. So you start from this place of commonality. You can also flip that around on its side and actually call out the differences or focus on some of the differences as a way to get people engaged and thinking critically about both their own perspective as well as others. Can you think of an example of that perhaps? So one thing that actually combines both of those strategies that I have experienced from from my time at Google was we would do this massive employee survey every year and ask about a bunch of different dimensions of the work environment. And communicating those results was always a really interesting thing. And it looked different for different parts of the organization. So I used to support one exec where his direct reports, they were very competitive. And so in that case, we would show them in a, in a single meeting, right? So you've got people who are representing very different parts of the business who mostly care about their piece and, and not, not their peers, but who are highly motivated by competition. And so in that case, we would show that whole group the high-level summary of how did it look across the organization and how does that break down by the areas which each oversees. So it gives them this commonality of, okay, we know how that rolls up. This was a sales organization. We know how this rolls up across the sales organizations. And I can see my piece where I can look to see where am I against my peers? Where are things similar? Where are they different? Where are there spots where everyone might be struggling and areas where we might focus attention? So that said, we also had to be careful in a couple of settings because people got so competitive that we ended up taking a different route where we would show the range of low to high across these different dimensions. And then we'd only show each exec where they were in that range because by actually sharing the detail across everybody, it got into these really unproductive conversations. And so you want to know that going in, ideally. But sometimes it is this process of getting to know your audience through communicating with them and then refining that over time as you get opportunities to work with them again. One of the sections in the book that you have mentioned and that was one of my personal favorites is the section around introduction. And in fact, at the last workshop that was done in Milwaukee, you did for the first time a whole separate workshop just around the art of the introduction. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about that because this is a topic that I know you're very passionate about, but 
on the topic of introductions. Why, why is this important? How do most people think about it or not think about it? Well, and I think that's it, that most people don't give much thought to how they introduce themselves. And it's such an important place to be able to connect with your audience and give them insight into who you are in a way that's going to help make the rest of the communication process smoother and easier. The session that we went through in Milwaukee was super fun, which was 90 minutes. Uh, This was an afternoon session the day before our standard storytelling with data workshop where participants had no idea, I don't think, what they were getting into because all we said was it's a special session based on content from the new book. And when people walked in the door, I had them start introducing themselves to each other. And then we talked a bit about that process. And one of the observations that was made was I basically just gave a recount of my resume or I start with my job title and then that kind of kills the conversation. And so then we went through this process of really crafting how we tell the story of ourselves. And I mentioned this before, but we can do so using a lot of the strategies that are shared throughout the book. So once we got into it, I had people get in mind a specific scenario in which they need to introduce themselves. This could be before a presentation or at a job interview, or maybe they're at a networking event, just get something specific in mind, then spend time brainstorming the perceptions that you want to create in the people to whom you're introducing yourself. How do you want them to describe you? And we spend quite a lot of time here to push people past the first few ideas that come up. These are typically lists of adjectives of how people want to be perceived. So if people wanted to do this or practice this or listening, and they want to start with just crafting the perceptions around them, what, what, what should they do? Make a list. Set a timer for five minutes and list as many adjectives that you would want somebody to describe you with, right? Imagine you just introduced yourself and it was amazing. And now your audience is full of these ideas about you and who you are. So this person walks away and says, wow, that Cole that was really... Cole is smart and articulate. She's eloquent. She's confident, right? And you can go on and on. And consulting at the source can be good to do. Try to make the, your list as long as you can in five minutes. Five uh, minutes is a long time five minutes is a very long time. Your list should be like 20, 25, 30 adjectives long at this point. And then you can go through the process of prioritizing. Group similar things together, put a lens at it of, all right, if this is the breadth of perceptions I might like to create, what are my top three perceptions? And now is when I like to get my sticky notes out. And I'll write each of those perceptions on a sticky notes and I'll arrange them in a loosely a triad, a triangle shape, because I'm going to put other sticky notes around them. So with those perceptions in mind, now you can spend time thinking about your experiences. These might be roles that you've had, projects you've worked on, anecdotes, stories, points of evidence that might illustrate things that are going to help you now get these perceptions across to your audience. Let's be more specific. Back to your original example, Cole is articulate. You said think of different experiences or anecdotes or what would be an example of that just if we're creating this Cola's articulate quality that we want people to walk away with. What might be some things you would draw on from that? 
So I went through this exercise. There's a case study that I visit in each chapter of the book so that we can see how you can apply the strategy in a concrete, real-world example. And so I went through this exercise of crafting my introduction as I was writing that piece. And that was fun because I had to imagine myself actually in this other persona, right? Because I'm still Cole in this scenario, but I'm not Cole who works at Storytelling with Data. I'm Cole who works at this consulting company and, and so forth. And so putting on a different hat to craft the introduction was really interesting. And Articulate was on my list, but it turned out that wasn't something that I needed a point of evidence to get across because I had several things on my list that I could illustrate simply through how I speak. And so that's one way, actually, when you go from your big list to trying to cut down your list in useful ways is by thinking about which of these might I demonstrate simply by how I speak and how I move and how I am? And where do I need points of evidence that are going to be concrete in different ways to get those perceptions across? So, so story is going to weave its way then ultimately into this as well? Or... Yes. After you've prioritized your perceptions, you've brainstormed different experiences that are going to help you demonstrate these, that's when story comes in. And now you want to think about, all right, of all of these ideas that you've brainstormed, how do they connect or, or which ones could you connect into a flow? And it's funny, even as I talk about this, I find I'm moving my arm in an upward and downward motion because for me, the narrative arc is the structure for doing this, where you start off with the plot, the thing that's going to get people's attention and start to set context. And then you introduce some tension and build that to a point of climax and then falling action and resolution. And so figuring out how you might structure the story of you loosely along this narrative arc. And the beauty of that is, or part of the beauty of that is the connectedness that it enforces. There's something about just organizing pieces of content in that flow that makes you think about how one piece connects to the next, that when we're storyboarding in a more linear fashion, it's easier to approach it in discrete pieces. And so forming your story and then the next thing to do, and this, this was a bit of a backfire at the actual session, but was still useful, I think. But the next thing to do is to take your plan that you now have, your sticky note storyboard, and talk through it out loud. I actually tried doing this in the session, which backfired a little bit because it turns out it's super uncomfortable for somebody in a room full of 50 some people to practice aloud. I think you were trying to model that behavior and it was even awkward doing that, right? Yeah, I was talking to myself, trying to encourage other people to talk to themselves, but that, that just seemed strange. It didn't go over well. So recapping a bit of, and folks can read the book to understand better around the introduction, but if we wanted to give some takeaways from this, this concept of really making sure you're thinking about what are the attributes and the qualities you want somebody to walk away with, actually listing those out, putting them on post-its, coming up with a few that you really want to highlight, then mapping that to experiences you've had or roles or different life events that map to that, and then figuring out what other stories could be woven into that. And I think actually one of the things that we've done at Storytelling with Data that's interesting is everyone on the team has really crafted their introduction and their narrative because they're often in front of audiences. 
And what you had done at the mini workshop was you had each of the people come in and do their introduction so that people would get a sense for that. And I think that made perfect sense for something where you're on a stage presenting to people, but it's not uncommon to go to an event and the person running the event says, all right, everybody turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself. And no one thinks about it. And as you said earlier, they recite their resume or their name and title. How do you go from the more, I'm going to tell you a story about this thing that happened to me and that's who I am. And that's why you're going to like hearing what I have to say to maybe that shorter more common situation where someone is going to be introducing themselves. And that's the beauty of it, which is when you go through this process in a robust way once, now you've got your big story that you're right, won't make sense to use in every setting, but you can draw now pieces from that. And what we did during the session and what I'm a big fan of in general is once you've gone through this process, now put various constraints on it. Imagine you have two minutes to introduce yourself or a single sentence and figure out what those might look like in different settings, because then you've got something that you can pull from anytime you need to introduce yourself. And it's not your job title. It's something usually much more interesting and personal than that. And for me, that was so fun to see at the session. So after people crafted their introduction, then they practiced delivering them to each other and giving feedback. And some of the connections that were made through that process blew my mind. There was one pair that they, through the introduction, actually somehow recognized that the woman lived in the same house that the guy had remodeled yeah, like a that. decade prior. So that was super fun. There were others that just commented on these personal anecdotes and ways that they were able to relate to each other and appreciate each other in ways that would never come up in a typical introduction. And I find that fascinating. And the cool thing is, you know yourself really well. And so starting applying some of the strategies and particularly those that feel a little uncomfortable, right? If you've never storyboarded before or haven't brainstormed with the idea of your audience in mind, starting out by doing that about something you know super well yourself can actually be a great way to practice a lot of the strategies that come up over the course of the book. And so The Art of the Introduction is chapter 11. It's right at the end, which maybe is surprising. But I think when you can confidently represent yourself and speak about yourself, it just it makes you feel really empowered to then be able to talk about other things in an eloquent and articulate way as well. I had a chance to participate in the session and an interesting output of one of the conversations I had was that the individual wanted to really relay all of their expertise and their knowledge and their ability to use technology in a really efficient way. But they had hesitation because they didn't want to come across like they were boasting and they were highlighting and, and showcasing themselves, especially because, as she had said, that where she was from, that this wasn't culturally acceptable at all, that you don't want to promote yourself in this way. And through that conversation we had around her ultimate goal of what she wanted to convey to somebody wasn't that she was super smart and knew how to use technology, but instead she really loved helping people achieve things that they may not be able to normally achieve because technology was a barrier. And so we changed her narrative around to, I found that I really enjoy helping people solve problems using technology, which is something I 
tend to have a, you know, I tend to be better at. And, her well, and whole notice conversation just changed. how the audience got brought yeah. into that in a much more direct way as well. Let's shift gears a bit and talk a little bit more about the writing process of the book, something I'm always fascinated in and something that I got a chance to see firsthand. So first of all, how did this book compare to the previous two books? This one I worked on for a longer period of time, but it was also in a few stops and starts. As I mentioned at the onset of our conversation, I wrote the introduction and mapped out the table of contents, which shifted around a little bit, but back in January 2018. And I was super gung-ho on it and then realized that there was another book that I wanted to write first, which was Let's Practice. That came out in 2019. And after that, once the dust settled there and I was ready to write again, I pulled this one off the shelf and started writing. And then it wasn't long after that, that global pandemic hit. And I had this thought, oh goodness, people are never going to talk to each other in person again. This book is fully irrelevant. But once I started to see things shift and that people were going to be talking to each other again in person and that we had to a large extent forgotten how, it seemed like timing was finally right. And so I wrote the majority of the book between December and April of this this past year. Talk a bit about that process. So you talked a little bit about the intro being penned in a cafe. That sounds like the classic romantic writer. But what does the rest of the process look like in terms of how you organize sections and thoughts and chapters and things you want to talk about? Yeah, not always as beautiful as that picture. I felt there were a number of times where I think I characterized it to you and others where I felt like I was fighting against the book because I I couldn't figure out how to structure some of the sections. And so when I'm writing, I, I follow a lot of the things that I actually end up talking about in the book, storyboarding being a key example of that. Before I start a chapter, I know what the topic is going to be. And then I spend time brainstorming on sticky notes, ideas that might fit in, examples that I might use, anecdotes that I may draw on from my experience, and then organize those. And oftentimes I'll do that and maybe let it sit for a bit and then come back with fresh eyes and continue to rearrange and add and take things away. And then I take all the sticky notes once I've got them in an order that I like, and I put them on large pieces of paper. And then I bring that large piece of paper around to the other side of my desk or up off of the floor, which those are my two favorite places to storyboard. And now that becomes the plan of attack as I start writing. And so often what will happen is some sticky notes become section headings, and then I write the details. But there were some cases, so I know the chapter on graphs, I wrote and rewrote and rewrote several times because it was a hard challenge to figure out how do I say things that I've spent entire books (laughs) explaining before? How do I put that all in a chapter? And you can't, obviously. So I, I I tried a couple different approaches and wasn't happy with any of it. And so then it was this process of figuring out, do I try to cut up what I've done and take that as a starting point and, and make it make sense? Or do I just need to start with a blank slate? And without and I actually, after fighting against it for a bit, I ended up starting with a blank slate and love how that chapter turned out. But it wasn't a linear process to get there. So you've shared your 
favorite chapter was the chapter around practicing and how to confidence, ex- how yeah. instill confidence in yourself. You talk about your most frustrating was around the the data piece of it and communicating. What what was the part that didn't make the book? Given the many rewrites of the chapter on graphs, there are big chunks of material that overlaps more directly with storytelling with data that I ended up just cutting entirely. For example, I remember, and I remember this because I posted bits of it on Twitter as I was going through and realizing that I wasn't going to be using it, a section on decluttering and a section on focusing attention because they were framed too similarly to ways that I had explained things before. And so as I look back, it feels like it was a fun challenge because I needed to take concepts that I'd talked about them before and do so in a way that is congruent with that, but not repetitive. And so it ends up being framed in a different way that I think actually turned into a great summary of how to communicate with graphs. The book's off to a good start. Do you think this is a testament to people's desire to get back to meeting and discussing and presenting and doing that in person? I hope so. And we're definitely seeing signals of that on our workshop side, where for a very long time, all of the inquiries were wanting virtual workshops. And then then there started being a smattering of in-person requests. And now we're getting back up to a steady volume of both virtual requests, but then also in-person. And there's just, there's a magic that happens when you are physically in the same space as others. And so I'm very happy to see that picking back up. You famously said that after you wrote Storytelling with Data, you didn't have any more words in you. (laughs) You now have two new books since then. Are you all out of words? Will there be something on the horizon? It's funny because I remember that feeling and I was so convinced. And I always thought it was funny because, and and people do this, uh, this is a little random, but people do this after you've just had a a baby as well. Uh, One question that you often get asked is, are you going to have another one? (laughs) Which some time has to pass before the answer to that is ever going to be yes. And I think it was like that with the book as well, with the first one, I should say, where I really felt like I had used all my words and I will never have more to say. I have the opposite problem now, which is I have too many words on all the things. I have a lot of things that I want to say. And Can you give so, us a hint of what might be coming up? I So there, there will absolutely be more books and books plural because I, I think I've found the, the fun and the flow and I love being able to share. And it's the most amazing feeling to have people sharing pictures all over the world, holding the book and reading words that I've written that there's magic and I love it. I want to write a book for a different demographic the next time around, which is the next generation of data storytellers. We have kids and It's for me so fascinating to see how they learn and how they experience the world. And we could be teaching problem solving and logic, I feel like at much earlier ages than gets done scholastically or typically in the school system. And so next, my plan is to write something with them in mind. I know what's up next. I just wasn't (laughs) sure what you were going to share with our listeners. Well, this has been fun. And I think it's been great to give people an insight into the book, which people should run out and buy now, correct? 
Yes, please visit storytellingwithyou.com. You can download sample content and order it from your favorite retailer. You gave us some great tips around the art of the introduction and how to think about audiences when it comes to your presentation. And you also painted this lovely picture of yourself writing the opening words to Storytelling With You. So why don't we end with you reading the introduction to Storytelling With You? Oh, that's fun. I wasn't anticipating that. I like to keep you on your toes. Let's begin with a story. When I was 12 years old, I ran for senator. I was in junior high school, and this was my first time running for an elected position in student government. I recall spending many hours perfecting my campaign signs. I'd beg my mother to take me to our small town's general store where I would pick out the perfect combination of colorful poster boards and paint. I was discerning about which friends I enlisted to help. Was Lisa's penmanship up to par? Leading up to the election, my bedroom floor was littered with materials, rulers to ensure straight lines, stencils for precise lettering, and supplies for the button maker. A large piece of butcher paper taped to the wall registered contending ideas for my campaign slogan. Looking back, choosing be picky, vote for Nikki was not one of my prouder moments. I also spent a good amount of time on my speech. Introducing freshly baked cookies into the student store, having one school dance al fresco on the football field instead of the Mel Orders gym, and building volunteer time into the school calendar were top priorities. I typed furiously on my family's electric typewriter, perfecting one line at a time as it appeared in the small display window before moving on to the next. It was a great speech. When election day came, I clearly remember the nerve-wracking walk across the gym to the podium to deliver those carefully crafted promises. 200 familiar faces looked at me expectantly from the bleachers. My hands trembled as I started to read what I'd written. Talk louder, someone shouted from the crowd. I could hear my voice shaking, amplified through the speakers. It was difficult to breathe. It was not a good performance. Despite all of that, I won the election. Apparently, the allure of cookies was enough to overcome my lack of confidence. I got one thing right. I knew my audience. This was an early presentation lesson that I didn't fully appreciate until later. Though baked goods aren't always an option, it is always about the cookie. Identifying that idea, opportunity, potential reward, or vision of the future that your audience will find irresistible. My journey to storytelling. I'm not a naturally strong speaker, nor an innate storyteller. I consider myself to be an introvert. The environment in which I feel most at ease is where I'm sitting now, writing these words, alone behind my laptop. You wouldn't guess any of this about me. That's because today I'm comfortable and effective speaking in front of a packed room or standing on stage confidently delivering a presentation. This did not happen by chance. These are carefully practiced and honed skills. While the learning has absolutely been intentional, it's also been somewhat curious since I didn't initially set out to do any of this. My first job was in banking. I was fresh out of undergrad with an applied mathematics degree, working as an analyst in credit risk management. A hard worker and always looking for ways to make things efficient, I had a knack for analyzing data and graphing it effectively. I was promoted. Within a couple of years, I found myself managing a small team and was responsible for presenting monthly data to our chief risk officer and his leadership group. The challenge was that I still had the same shaky hands and quivering voice as I did in junior high. This audience of leaders, mostly men and at least a decade my senior, made me nervous. Over time, I learned to put my paper down so my trembling hands wouldn't be the first thing they noticed. Breathing more deeply helped to steady my voice. But I still had a big issue. Filler words. I was uncomfortable with silence and as a result simply didn't ever pause. 
If I couldn't find the word I was looking for, I wouldn't stop to collect my thoughts. Instead, I would fill that space with likes, ahs, and ums. I tried introducing disincentives to change my behavior. I had my team listen to my monthly meetings via teleconference and count my offenses. I'd owe a dime for each one. This paid for a number of team happy hours. However, I was no better off in my meetings with management. Though my career was growing professionally and I could do great work behind the scenes, my lackluster live presentations weren't doing the material and findings justice. When the credit risk crisis hit in 2007, I left banking to apply the analytical skills I'd developed to another area on the Google People Analytics team. Google was a fantastic environment in which to work, and I feel tremendously grateful for the advancement this role afforded me. One such opportunity was being able to create a class and teach others how to effectively communicate their data. It turned out to be a popular topic and was rolled out as an offering across Google globally. This was amazing and highly intimidating, given that I'd never formally taught anything. Fortunately, I was able to sign up for an internal series of courses to help learn how to teach. Two simple tips I picked up during that program greatly impacted me, forever changing the way I communicate. Stand up and don't shift. You'll hear more about these later. During my years at Google, in addition to my core role in people analytics, I taught scores of classes on visualizing data. Participants came from all parts of the organization, sales, engineering, product marketing, and people operations. I started to recognize how different types of individuals communicate in distinct ways. I gained visibility to various scenarios, challenges, and opportunities for communicating, both through participant stories and through the different situations in which I taught. I built experience guiding small teams through hands-on activities and large groups through structured content and facilitated discussions. I was invited to speak on stage at my first conference. Eventually, interest in my course outside of Google led me to teach at other companies. By early 2012, it was becoming clear to me that the need for communicating effectively with data extended far beyond Google. I took a leap and decided to take my passion project, Storytelling with Data, to the next level, leaving my day job to concentrate on ridding the world of exploding 3D pie charts one workshop at a time. This started small, and admittedly, the stakes were relatively low. I was happy to have my travel expenses covered and a willing audience. Those early workshops gave me an opportunity to gain traction and a good amount of practice. At first, I focused mainly on making sure my slides were superb, the lessons made sense, and the flow was smooth. It was only after I was comfortable with my content that I turned my attention to delivery. It was time to face my demons from that old gymnasium. In the same way I'd observed how graphing data differently changed the way people reacted, I started to notice how nuances in my delivery influenced others. Watching my audience for cues and feedback, I would see the impact of varying simple things like my volume and speed. I could get someone to contribute to the discussion based on where I stood in the room and use my hands and body for emphasis. When a group became pensive, softening my voice could draw them into the present, their ears perking up in attention. Becoming animated would immediately shift the energy in the room. Every new audience meant a fresh opportunity to experiment, learn, and refine my storytelling and presentation skills. Along with this, I had a growing and revolutionary realization. As a good presenter, I could get others to invest in what I care about. Conversely, if I can't present my ideas effectively, there's no way I can drive the change I seek. Over time, justly serving Storytelling with Data's mission to inspire positive change through the way people communicate with data meant I could use some help. It's a big job. The company's grown to include a small group of talented individuals. 
Each member must be adept at communicating, able to present skillfully and capable of speaking in a way that makes others want to listen and engage. Sharing what I've learned, I've guided my team to become powerful presenters and inspiring storytellers. By practicing and implementing the lessons outlined in this book, you will become one too. The introduction goes on from there with sections on why people should want to be a better storyteller, who the book's written for, what you'll find in the book, including summaries of each of the 12 chapters. And again, I'll point people to go to storytellingwithyou.com. The sample you can download actually includes the full introduction as well as the first half of chapter 10, which is my favorite chapter. So check that out and order your copy today. Now I know why the kids enjoy nighttime bed stories. <laughs> Thanks for sharing with us. And this was a great conversation. Thanks for sitting down with me, Randy. It's been fun. And thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in is weird, though. That's what you say at the end of it. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. For those listening, yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't be listening. If you're hearing my voice, you are tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>